Welcome to Interchain FM, where we dive into the frontier of the blockchain space. We're now in the third generation of blockchain tech, where a burgeoning multi-chain ecosystem is about to explode into what we call the decentralized web. Where Ethereum is to the mainframe computing era of the internet, Cosmos is to the PC era. If you're seeking alpha in the Cosmos ecosystem, look no further. This is the destination for your exponential learning experience. Interchain FM is where you can get the download on all of the high signal projects, building bridges to one another, and how you can participate in the future of the internet. What's up, everyone? We're back in 2022 with a running start for our Cosmos so far. Never been a better time to launch an app chain than this year. You're listening to Interchain FM. If you're seeking Alpha and Cosmos, look no further. I'm your host, Chango Unchained. And today we are here with Harry Halpin on the podcast. Harry is the founder of NIM, and he's one of the OG cypherpunks in the space. Welcome to the show, Harry. Yes, uh, thanks for the introduction. Uh, so yeah, I am a, a founder of NIM and a, a strong believer in uh, crypto anarchist ideology or philosophy, let's say. And uh, happy to discuss all of the latest movements uh, we've made in the last few months, a lot of which have been been quite large. And happy to explain also to people just what NIM is and why network privacy is important because everyone gets very obsessed with zero knowledge, but people leave the rest of the privacy stack out. Right. Fair enough. I just want to disambiguate this because this is pretty important to me. You, I think, are considered a cypherpunk and a crypto anarchist. I don't consider myself a cypherpunk, but a crypto anarchist. Can you disambiguate the two? So how I disambiguate the two is I can disambiguate the two by noting that crypto anarchism is a, a variant of anarchism, which is very old philosophy, far predates cryptography, came out, was part of the first international uh, came out of the, essentially in the the uh, industrial revolution of the uh, 1800s. So this is Pierre Proudhon, and then followed by, let's say, you know, depending who you talk, let, talk about Eli Reclus or Kropotkin. And anarchism basically believes that domination in any form uh, restricts human freedom, and that we should maximize human freedom and, and autonomous self development. And the main blockers to human freedom. There are quite a few. There's the, the state being one. Um, and this is the disagreement between anarchists and, say, Marxists. And then also there is the theory of crypto-anarchism, which basically says we can use technology, in particular cryptography, to essentially make the state less necessary and less powerful and less ripe for corruption and abuse. So that's crypto-anarchism. Uh, cypherpunk, most of the same people. So you associate, for example, crypto anarchism with uh, some great people, and, uh, Jude Milhone, for example. So maybe not so not so wonderful people like Tim May. Uh, cypherpunk, you might want to just disambiguate a bit by saying, looking at like Eric Hughes' cypherpunk manifesto. Uh, I would associate cypherpunk with also the Tor founders of uh, Roger Dingledean and others who are not necessarily uh, crypto anarchists, you know, uh, but what uh, they might be. Uh, but what you would say with cypherpunks is that they're very interested in privacy. Privacy is the ability to selectively disclose oneself to the world, as put in the cypherpunk manifesto by um, Eric Hughes. And they tend to be less overtly uh, political than I would say crypto anarchists, more focused on, you know, cypherpunks don't write books or manifestos. They, as uh, they say, they write running code. 
And so to get a bit of a more, I would say, uh, practical uh, ideology, uh, but it does also, you know, it has obviously political ramifications as well. So typically you, you merge these two terms. And then there's a further subset, which is crypto syndicalism. Yeah, I haven't seen that yet. I guess like Nathan Schneider's like weird co-op stuff could go that way. Uh, who knows? There's a million different weird political philosophies in crypto. And I think one of the, the strengths of uh, the space is that it's actually very politically open. So if you talk to people in like traditional libertarian spaces or uh, traditional anarchist spaces, uh, uh, they're, they're very often uh, dogmatic. And I do think the one thing we can learn from the cypherpunks and from, and from the internet in general and code in general is that we really need to focus on what pragmatically works today, not a, a kind of utopian vision of a future society. And you were friends with Amir Taki, right? I actually imagined that he was more of a crypto syndicalist rather than an anarchist. But Oh, no, no. He's, he's perhaps more of a crypto anarchist than, than myself. I'm uh, more of a traditional anarchist. So Amir, uh, I met Amir, geez, correct me, 2012. Uh, and he was one of the first people that told me about uh, Bitcoin. I remember Bitcoin came by my inbox on um, the Cypherpunk mailing list, which is quite a crazy place, and I didn't honestly pay it too much attention. And I asked my friend Ben Laurie, who's now at Google and advising NIM, I said, Ben, is, is uh, Bitcoin, do you think this makes sense? He's like, well, I have a paper showing that proof of work doesn't work. And I said, oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. So I guess it doesn't make sense. I ignored it uh, for a number of years. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I started taking it seriously when uh, I met young people like Amir who were very much pushing cryptocurrency as a revolutionary technology. And Amir was also the first person to point out a lot of the privacy problems. So with his work on Dark Wallet, he was, I remember he was discussing CoinJoin, stealth addresses, and all of this. Uh, and I felt it was, um, you know, I looked at it and I said, well, it's not even clear if proof of work works. I've actually changed mine. I actually think proof of work does work pretty well. But I, I was pretty I felt pretty shaky on the privacy properties of Bitcoin. A lot of people did mistakenly believe pseudonyms somehow defended you. And my PhD is not cryptography, it's in artificial intelligence, and so therefore I'm quite familiar with machine learning. I said, Well, there's no way that a machine learner can't de-anonymize these pseudonyms. Uh, and so I said, well, you know, Amir would be great. You know, I was trying to get people to do PhDs at the time. I had, a, I was a, a researcher, uh, first at MIT and then entered to Paris. So I had a lot of research money and I was always looking for bright young people. We're still looking at NIM for bright young people to do PhDs in cryptography. And I said, well, maybe we should get some, some academics on this because I, you know, I felt some of the design choices I wasn't quite so sure of. And uh, I ended up being right. It took a number of years for all that stuff to come through. But now we see a true explosion of work on, for example, zero-knowledge systems. And so I really do think Amir was the first to spot all of the problems. And then over the last 10 years, to be honest, a number of academics have come in and, and proposed nice systems and a number of awesome cypherpunks and companies have, have even built some of those systems, uh, looking at uh, confidential transactions and liquid to Zcash to all the craziness going on on Ethereum and now Cosmos. Right. And your background also consists of working at the W3C, but you did resign because of their DRM standardization. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I have a lot of respect for the W3C. And so far as that, I do think it was a sort of knights of the round table that were really trying very hard to keep the web an open platform. Uh, but the problem is when you're trying to make a public good, such as the original web, the web one, I mean, we're not even getting to web three yet. 
you know, there's a lot of problems. Uh, and one problem is uh, there's a lot of monopolies that would like to control the web, and there's a lot of money in controlling the web. And so W3C would be where Google and Facebook and Twitter all came to essentially solve their problems. And one of the problems we had, the one that I was in charge with, uh, was uh, lack of cryptography access in browsers. So I did the W3C Web Cryptography API, which is a very conservatively designed API. It doesn't handle a lot of the stuff that people want to do now on the web. And now we're seeing WebAssembly do that work, which is great, although sometimes dangerous. At W3C, unfortunately, you know, at some point, it, it was a membership-based organization and it ran out of money. And, you know, or at least was having not doing so great. And so when Netflix comes to get up and Google decides they're right after resisting theorem for a very long time, wants to push digital rights management, essentially preventing you from streaming Netflix without paying, the problem is that you basically forced to put key material on people's computers. But unlike in cryptography, where the key is considered somehow self-sovereign, that it's my key, therefore it's my Bitcoin, or it's my key, it's my validator on Cosmos. Uh, the key is actually controlled by a third party, and that's quite, uh, I found that ethically objectionable. Uh, the EFF also objected. The Free Software Foundation objected. There were protests. We were unfortunately unable to convince uh, the W3C to not standardize DRM. And so now we all have DRM in our browsers and I left. But that was a great thing for me because it got me out of MIT and got me back into looking at, at mass surveillance. And I've, to be honest, I've, pro I've learned much more uh, and we've built much more working on mass surveillance than we could have ever done in the constraints of the web browser space. So going back to Web1, before there was even the W3C, how did something like that emerge and become such a powerful actor such that they could determine what becomes standardized? Yeah, so standards are pretty complicated. And essentially the way I think about them is that, you know, you have to convince various parties that there's more to be gained from interoperability than from not being interoperable. It's actually quite a hard thing to, to claim. Most of these companies, such as Google and Facebook, are what you call monopoly capitalists. So they get their power not from innovation. I mean, come on, what has Google done recently? Not so much. Facebook, <laughs> I mean, this metaverse stuff, it's not even deploying anything new. It hasn't deployed anything new for years. But they get their power because they're monopolies. And they get monopolies by building walled gardens around users to prevent users from leaving their platform and then they advertise at them or, or whatever, which essentially is based advertising, is surveillance. It's based on surveillance in the, in the modern web. So standards, you have to make an argument that actually it's somehow better to be interoperable. And this was a very easy argument to make in the early days of the internet. The internet was basically made by a bunch of grad students and hackers, probably not that different. Although again, this is all pre-public key and the invention of public key cryptography in the 70s. And, you know, the Internet uh, Engineering Task Force, uh, I've heard it even called, it used to be an anarcho-hippie commune. It was not a, a bunch of just corporate guys. It was kind of just a bunch of grad students and random hackers, and people that stayed up late, trying really to get things like we take for granted today, like email working, file transfer. And they were pretty successful. And the Internet Engineering Task Force is still very successful. And I do recommend that people in the blockchain space should look at their standards, use their standards, and interact in that process. Unlike the W3C, anyone can just show up at Internet Engineering Task Force meeting. Meetings, decisions are made by consensus, although they don't have on-chain consensus. They hum in a room together. Or God knows I don't know what's going on now with COVID. And it was a quite, it's quite a cool process. And that's what gave us the initial internet stack. But the problem with the initial internet stack is that, you know, 
cryptography was a military secret. So people didn't have access, you know, Vince Cerf basically said they had to fork the internet to make a private internet for the military that had cryptography involved, and the public internet did not have cryptography involved. So what happened with the rise of e-commerce is Netscape and other companies came together. They kind of bolted on, not particularly well sometimes, cryptography onto the internet. That's why you have things like uh, Ben Lurie's wonderful work on OpenSSL that lets you get you that little block, that little uh, lockbox in your browser. That's all came kind of in the 90s. Uh, that led, of course, to the web taking off and then my work on getting uh, cryptography into JavaScript. This was a this took a very long time. And to be honest, it's very ugly. And so I think the nice thing that the blockchain space has going for it is there's no clear monopolies yet. There's not a single dominant company running things. We could talk about Cosmos and Jaquan off. So I think Cosmos has shown that their ecosystem can survive uh, key actors leaving. And that that this is builds a more stronger, resilient uh, system. However, where I think the blockchain space could use a bit more standards, and when you talk about blockchain interoperability, uh, you know, uh, you had vastly different people and different companies, often who are very much against each other, uh, building essentially cross-internet standards. And so if you want to build cross-chain standards or just new cryptography standards in general for stuff that the old-fashioned web hasn't got around to looking at, like zero-knowledge proofs, or even Sphinx, you know, the packet format that we and NIM use, it's also used by Lightning Network. I think we're going to have to engage both with traditional standards bodies, uh, who also do nice things like clear out patents and whatnot, and engage in our own kind of new standards bodies that really try not just to build standards in between, let's say, I don't know, two Cosmos chains, although that's cool, it's a good place to start. But what you need is you need Cosmos, you need interoperability between, for example, radically different ecosystems as well, both transfer of assets from, let's say, traditional payment providers to blockchain, to Bitcoin, and then Bitcoin to other to other technologies. And th- this, I feel, we're a little bit behind on. But again, it's very early days. It, it took it took the internet internet engineers force like years to get its act together. The World Wide Web Consortium was founded pretty immediately after the web started getting big. But it, again, it took kind of years to really get HTML5 out and out there. And so, you know, we I do think standards also do take time. How far into the future do you imagine a blockchain World Wide Web Consortium analog would emerge? And given what you know about the existing bridging technologies today, which do you think is most likely to become the interchain standard of the future? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I'm not actually a cross-chain expert. We're, we're still playing with a lot of the I, uh, IBC work, so I, I'm not going I have to defer to my CTO, Dave, there, who's much more deep into, into that work. Uh, I would say that's very early days for bridges. So I would at least wait a, a two or three years to see how it all pans out. There'll be hacks that we don't see coming. Typically, the standard that wins is the simplest one. And it also has to have support by the majority of large ecosystems or companies in the case of W3C. I do think it's an interesting choice of if blockchain technologies should go with the W3C, should go with traditional bodies. So, for example, you see the decentralized identifier work happening there. I'm very much against that work. I think there's some, nothing worse than putting my personal identity on a blockchain or my keys, my public keys on a blockchain. <laughs> it just seems to be a bad idea. Uh, somehow people don't, they're like, oh, it's self-sovereign. I'm like, it's self-sovereign and allows easy surveillance by people that you may not want to know uh, your personal data. And there's a lot of kind of zero-knowledge work there, but it's all hand-waving as far as I can see. And it's also backed by companies I, I personally dislike, such as IBM and Microsoft. But on, on that being said, you know, 
like I said, I think the, the blockchain world should bridge with the IETF, the Internet Engineering Task Force, because they really have a huge reservoir of crypto implementation experience. Some of the work that they did, for example, on TLS, again, that lock in your browser with formal verification is far ahead of anything happening in the blockchain space today. I, mean, I think we could learn a lot in the blockchain space from the IETF, and that maybe that you know certain amounts of blockchain technology could be standardized there. We could also spin up our own standards body. Again, it's just like the web. In the web, in the beginning of the web, you had Netscape, IE trying to kill Netscape. You had a fragmentation of HTML. So I think it's naturally a part of the ecosystem that you see some level of fragmentation in the beginning as various uh, ecosystems or uh, companies, in the case of the original web, make kind of power grabs, land grabs, just trying to get more developers interested in their work. And then over a, a few years, you naturally see consolidation. That consolidation does slow down innovation, I might add, but it also builds a solid foundation that new innovation can be built on. Uh, and I, I don't think we're quite at the space. I mean, I'm, I think Bitcoin's pretty solid. I think everything else, a Tendermint PBFT, which essentially is, I think, uh, the Liskov PBFT, this is actually all quite solid. That's one of the reasons why we like uh, Cosmos at NIM. But that being said, you know, Things just take time and you can't really speed up the process, I think. Where do you think we are right now for the blockchain space compared to where we were in Web 1? I've heard that we are in the 1990s, but from like an investor perspective, but from a tech perspective, I don't see that we yet have a network of networks yet with respect to having standardization. And so I've also heard that we are in the 1980s of Web1. Where do you think we are? I was there more in the 90s. People, I mean, you know, HTML wasn't fully standardized. I mean, it didn't exist in the 80s, but I, mean, I think it's more about community, right? So I think we're in the 80s in terms of the fact that in the 90s, the web browser took off and a lot of people started using it. We haven't got except, again, maybe with Bitcoin as an investment vehicle, which now you could even access over Fidelity with Grayscale. I mean, it's completely, it's pretty accessible in most jurisdictions. With that exception, I think we are not at the point where we have widespread community usage. We don't have, I don't know, my mom and dad using Cosmos for anything. Uh, They're still, you know, they're skeptical, uh, somewhat like myself, even of Ethereum. So I think in the community aspect, we're maybe in the 80s. In terms of investment standardization, I think we're more in the early 90s, so pre-large standards bodies. But we do have things that work. Things We're starting to work in the 90s. And I think most importantly, you know, the 90s, it took a while for HTML to finally kind of get standardized properly. And I think we're, we're at that stage. But there's still so much potential. The investment is there. The hype is there. And, you know, I was a quite young teenager in the 90s, so I, I missed a lot of that. But uh, I do remember BBS is an IRC and whatnot. And that's how I got involved in a lot of stuff. Uh, but I think we're seeing that uh, we're at that stage. I think we're in maybe the 80s in terms of community and the 90s in terms of actual tech and standards. So let's segue to NIM and the Cosmos app chain that you have built. Can you talk about that? I mean, before going that, I do want to say that the cypherpunks, maybe this is a good way to explain and the crypto anarchists, you know, even the 90s, when this technology like barely worked or often didn't work at all, they were predicting that this technology would be used for political purposes, and that it would be, uh, it would lead to revolutionary changes. And that one of the big problems that they saw coming, they saw it before it even happened, 
in the 90s was that mass surveillance would be a problem. And so they could be considered three main problems that the uh, early kind of cypherpunks, crypto anarchists were interested in tackling. The first problem, which everyone knows about, is digital cash, right? So that's the one where Bitcoin can, kind of comes out and then we see uh, other descendant systems, you know, Cosmos is in that category. Then uh, there's a second problem, which people didn't really, are just kind of waking up to, and this is where NIM comes in, is the problem of metadata and surveillance, that essentially if all your transactions are digital, maybe they're even self-surveilled on a blockchain because you write every transaction down on a blockchain, uh, then it's very easy for third parties to surveil those uh, transactions, use them against you. This was viewed as a huge danger, particularly uh, from nation states in the 90s before it even happened, right? So the NSA was to my knowledge, in the 90s, I, I talked to Roger about this once, barely aware the internet existed, but eventually they got really into it, right? And then we had the Snowden leaks, which explained all of that. And the third problem, which is something that NIM is trying, uh, working on in the Cosmos ecosystem under the, uh, we call it, it's, the, it's, it's anonymous credentials. So, you know, if you can imagine, I would like to make a, a financial transaction private, and I would like to hide that financial print transaction even from adversaries like nation states or companies like Chainalysis that can observe an entire network, you may also want to do that with other kinds of information. You may want to do that with personal information. I may want to prove that I'm a citizen of a country so I can vote, but I don't want you to know who I'm voting for or when I'm voting even. You just, I just need to know that you need to know that I voted. Or, you know, all of the, I'm very critical of COVID passports. They're a terrible idea. And one of the reasons they're terrible is that it discloses too much info. Why do you need to know my birth date when I'm trying to access public space or cross a border? You know, you need, to, you need to know if I've been vaccinated or not. I and mean, it's not even clear if the vaccines work anymore with Omicron. But, uh, you know, you can imagine, and we actually just uh, built a prototype of this. You can imagine anonymous credential technology, uh, which is just a generalization of privacy-enhanced uh, Chaman, uh, David uh, Chaman eCash to be used for kind of general purpose information. Now, it's not general purpose in the same way the zero knowledge was. None of the zero knowledge stuff really existed very well. <laughs> and the, I think it was just one or two research papers in the 90s. But it's similar, the way you think about it is that zero-knowledge systems, uh, unlike anonymous credential systems, are capable of generic computation. So they're sort of, for lack of a better word, Turing complete. You can put all C programs in there. When I was at MIT, uh, Madars, who was working on LibSnarks that led to Zcash, was in the office across the street. We would hang out a lot. Anonymous credentials are more limited. The way to think about them is they're arrays. You know, if you have a program, you've seen a JSON array probably at some point in your life. So it's just like a list of strings or integers, and you can prove things about that, but you can't do generic computations on that. And that's what anonymous credential system provides you. And so these are the three main things that the cypherpunks thought would be necessary to stop totalitarianism with the rise of ubiquitous internet access. And NIM is currently focused on the second two, <laughs> We don't. We we digital cash uh, in terms of financial transfers is is decently well solved by Bitcoin, although it has privacy issues, obviously, which can be solved by side chains or whatever zero knowledge proofs. And Cosmos solves general purpose blockchain technology, which we quite like because it lets us make anonymous credentials that use blockchains. But what we've seen is that a lot of people get very obsessed with zero knowledge systems. They want to make, for example, uh, zero knowledge DeFi. That's what Amir is working on. I think that's what uh, Penumbra is working on. It's a great topic. I'm sure there'll be an explosion of amazing systems. I'm, I'm, of course, I'm quite a fan of Amir's system. But all these systems are like building a castle on sand. If every time, it doesn't matter if I'm using a zero knowledge statement on chain or if I'm using confidential transactions, homomorph encryption, you know, choose your poison here. It doesn't matter if every time I send a transaction that that transact the network communication, the fact that I'm talking to you or I sent this transaction at a particular time, that I sent this transaction at all, 
is easily detectable by anyone who who could be watching my internet connection. And you're like, well, who would be watching my internet connection? But indeed, it's incredibly easy. I can watch almost anyone's internet connection by just opening a program called Wireshark. Uh, your ISP is definitely watching your internet connection. If your, uh, your, your chain analysis is watching, I don't know if they're watching Cosmos yet, but they're definitely watching uh, Bitcoin. It's quite easy for particularly nation state actors to get this uh, technology. It's very easy to store and then use machine learning on top of network level data. And so the way to think about it is that blockchain systems essentially are built on peer-to-peer transfers, including Cosmos. I think Cosmos is a UDP uh, peer-to-peer protocol. You need to check. And that this peer-to-peer broadcast, so, you know, everyone wants to know who's who's the leader in a leader election-based system or what's the status of the chain and what's the consensus on the chain. This peer-to-peer broadcast is done completely in the open. So when I do a transaction, I reveal to the whole world that I've done this transaction. I reveal my IP address, which can track me down to my neighborhood. I reveal the time I did this transaction. Uh, I reveal, and if I do a bunch of, most transactions are pretty complicated. So there's a pattern of transactions that identifies me as uniquely as a fingerprint. And And it does not matter what you do on chain unless you build privacy on top of your network data so that you are not linkable. You cannot be linked to particular network level transactions. And that's what NIM is working on. We think that's a, a quite important and generic infrastructure. Absolutely. So for anonymous credentialing, is that a drop-in replacement for something like DID? Not really, because uh, it could be used for all the use cases. And I think it's a much better solution. I've actually, uh, we actually had a huge argument with the European Commission on this, and we got kicked out of a European Commission project for disagreeing with DIDs. Figure. Uh, there's definitely a strong lobbyist going for it. And I know they're working with IATA and other vaccine passport friendly uh, travel industry uh, lobbies. That being said, uh, the most important, I think a lot of people get excited by DIDs because you want to have a notion of identity, but it's important. Identity is actually a really hard problem. It took the internet ages to even get basic things like OAuth which is used for Google sign-on working. And I, I do think that anonymous credentials, while not mature yet, have a nice aspect to them, which is that they let you basically transfer data off-chain. That's very important. So you're not necessarily putting anything on-chain that's very valuable. And again, somewhat similar to, let's say, a zero-knowledge system, the only thing you have to put on-chain is a nullifier. And you only have to do that in case if there's uh, double spending problems. So, for example, if you're sending something that might you might not want to use twice or if something expires at a certain date. It's a pretty cool technology. I'm actually kind of surprised more people in the blockchain space aren't working on it. But, you know, such is life. Uh, it's, it's a little bit obscure unless you've uh, done a little bit of academic work in the space. But we will plan to bring, and we already have released the code, it's not anonymous credentials uh, to the Cosmos ecosystem. Uh, we got a grant from Interchain to develop it. Uh, I know Polkadot's also interested in this technology, and we've built pretty generic Rust and Go libraries for it. And we do think that uh, even though maybe it's not as exciting as some of the latest CK stuff, you know, again, I'm an old standards guy, I'm conservative, I want works well and works now rather than absolutely amazing and may work in the distant future. So I really do think that we'll have anonymous credentials working this year uh, for anyone that might want them on the Cosmos ecosystem. And that will allow uh, all sorts of uh, kind of personal database stuff to be done in a way which has uh, a good amount of privacy. And you combine that with network level privacy, you have actually a quite cool, what I what we call full stack privacy system or holistic privacy, where you, you're preventing leaks a different part of the system. I just want to mention this really quick because a lot of people get very confused, like on-chain, off-chain, where's the privacy? Look, 
privacy is hard because it's a holistic property of the entire system. If you have a leak on the network layer, you can use the de-anonymize the chain. But you can also be using amazing technologies like NIM on the network level, but then, you know, someone asks you for your name on a web form, you fill it in, you just dox yourself on the application level, right? So it, it really involves the entire stack. And what NIM does is we provide kind of building blocks, and particularly for the network stack, which is a total mess in blockchain systems. Uh, but we're also interested in making sure that we can actually build privacy-enhanced technologies uh, on top of the network stack as well. How do you have civil resistance if it's anonymous? Yeah, that's a super hard question. So uh, this actually goes back to cypherpunks. So cypherpunks have this wonderful saying, which is transparency for the powerful, privacy for the weak. And so the question is, and this has been a totally confusing to some of our users recently in NIM, the real question is, who is powerful and who is weak? And let's say NIM. So the power resides in the people who are running the mixed nodes. So let me describe a little bit how NIM works, otherwise it doesn't make sense. So how NIM works, so I send some packets, I don't want anyone to observe them, I encrypt them. I chop them up so that they're the same size. And at each hop in the network, there are these mixed nodes that somewhat similar, they're essentially a proof of work system, so they're very distinct from Cosmos in this regard. They mix the, no the packets up, if there's not enough packets, they add fake packets, they ship to another mixed node. And just like Tor, you do three hops. And that's enough mixing to give you pretty, pretty remarkable anonymity on a network level. And you can kind of fine tune this however you want for your application. And so you can see where the, there's two crucial dependencies in our system. One is, well, you have mixed nodes. If I'm going to send a packet to a bunch of mixed nodes, I have to know where they are. So that means I need to know an IP address. I need to know a key for them because I'm encrypting data to them. Second, the question is, how do I find those mixed nodes? So this is where NIM uses Cosmos. It's where we were using Liquid, but we ran into problems with Liquid because simplicity and smart contracts do not yet work on uh, Bitcoin and Liquid. So we said, well, we need something that works right now. And we switched over to using uh, Cosmos, particularly because of the WebAssembly Cosmwasm smart contracts. And so what we said is we need to have a system that we can maintain the amount of reputation, and we have a NIM token for this, of each mixed node. And that based on how many packets they're mixing, uh, they get better reputation, they do it correctly, they do it quickly, they don't drop packets or go offline. So not only do the mixed nodes have to have some level of transparency, again, we don't need to KYC people, we don't need to know their real names, but they have to have keys and IP addresses. The user has to talk to someone to discover those mixed nodes. And that is done... If you look at Tor, there are parallelism. That's done by talking to what's called directory authorities, essentially seven to 11, or 11 people that run servers. And we just slot in a Cosmos blockchain as our directory authority. A directory authority tells any user, I start up my computer, I want to hide my network traffic. I need a public record of who's the good mix nodes, where are they? And then uh, I send the, I, I can discover that by talking to, uh, the Cosmos uh, blockchain. And we've actually just recently decided to name our Cosmos blockchain because we were using it for so many different things. We called it Nyx, which is kind of a cool name. It's goddess of the night from ancient Greek. And uh, also a makeup store, possibly. And so what has to be transparent to some extent in NIM? So I'm, I am going to answer the question. It's the validators, the people that are running the Cosmos chain that tell users where the mixed nodes are and the mixed nodes themselves. And that what the validators and mixed nodes do by virtue of mixing the packets and the validators maintain the reputation of the mixers is they provision privacy not to themselves. That's actually a very hard question. That's an amazing research question. I've never seen, I've only seen one paper that even does it halfway decently. 
but they provide privacy to users. And this is just like Tor and a VPN. A Tor nodes aren't anonymous, VPNs are anonymous in a strong sense, and mixed nodes and validators in NIM are not anonymous, but they provide anonymous communication to users. And so, and so because the users are the ones that are going to be targeted. Uh, now, it's also true that nodes may be targeted, uh, and it is, and we have a lot of lawyers. We just hired one last week. You know, we're not just hiring random blockchain lawyers. We're hiring lawyers that used to do uh, Guantanamo cases and whatnot. You know, our lawyers basically say, and I think they're correct, that it is legal to run a VPN. The U.S. government, you know, is fine with Tor. It's legal to run Tor. I mean, maybe not in China. And so that, you know, the node runners themselves don't even know what traffic they're pumping through. So the, really the liability and the, the, the problems will fall upon users. And so that's who we're trying to protect. Now, that being said, I mean, I don't know if this may be heretical for Cosmos blockchain, but there are there is work on making proof-of-stake networks fully anonymous, that the validators themselves are anonymous. And the only work I've seen that I think is quite good, I, maybe there's probably more I haven't seen, is a, a system by Cardano, this uh, Ouroboros Crispinomius, I think. It's a Greek term because Agalos Kiaios is behind it, who's Greek, and who is an advisor in NIM and also works on Cardano. And it allows essentially anonymous proof of stake networks where you don't, your node can be anonymous. You kind of could do a zero knowledge proof of how much stake you you have. And somehow the Ouroboros uh, protocol works out. And this looks like a cool system. It is, to my knowledge, not implemented nor planned to be implemented by anyone particularly soon. But it'd be cool if someone from Cosmos looked into this stuff. That'd be great. Perfect. You know, if the mixed nodes are the ones that are doing the mixing, aren't they privy to that information? Don't they know the extra packets that they are putting into mix, which they know are like real traffic and fake? Like, Yeah, but that, but so it's important to remember that we use this thing called the Sphinx packet format, and that makes all the packets look identical. And at each hop, we, what we call re-randomize the crypto. So you get one ciphertext in, it's kind of magic, and you pull another ciphertext out, but the same key can still decrypt the, both ciphertexts, essentially adding an exponent. And so the Sphinx packet format was invented for MixNets uh, by our co-founding uh, research scientist, George Denisis, who went to Facebook and came back. We're very happy about that. And uh, the Sphinx packet format basically prevents the kinds of attacks that you're worried about insofar as that to a mix node... It all looks the same because you create these things packets on your computer. So I create them locally, like on my laptop or my desktop. So I no, no one outside my desktop knows like the data that I'm sending and well, the receiver will know it when they get it. And then you make these Sphinx packets, you ship them into the MixNet and they just see a bunch of Sphinx packets. And because of each mix, because of this mixing process and we use a particular kind of statistical process called a Poisson process, quite clever from Anya Petrowski, our head of research. And that this process basically says at each mix node, there's a randomized delay. This randomized delay is chosen a way that we know on average how long it takes a packet to get through a network. So, you know, it's not going to get stuck and just wait there forever. I mean, you know, that would be terrible. You'll never finish your transaction. But we can sort of say, well, look, it didn't come out with an average time. Please resubmit. And because the packet goes to a mixed node and it stays at that mixed node for some randomized amount of time and other packets are coming in, uh, that even with, with no fake packets, the mixed nodes cannot distinguish the packets. They don't know what's going on. They have a much, and to be honest, mixed nets have a much higher plausible deniability than, let's say, a VPN or Tor, where you have that traffic pattern not randomized in terms of time and traffic isn't mixed, so they can kind of see the fingerprint. 
That's how website fingerprinting attacks can work against things like Tor. Uh, we're actually doing uh, a lot of studies on the differences between Tor and mixed nodes in this regards. Now, the second thing you part up, which is a very good question, is how about the fake traffic? Because the mixed node, it knows what fake traffic it put in, right? I mean, it, it put it in. Uh, but luckily, users can generate fake traffic. So, sub, so you know, how if I'm the first mixed in the mixed in the mixed network, I don't know if it's real traffic or fake traffic. In fact, we have this little part of our system called gateways where users can talk privately to a gateway, and that gateway, even the user is offline, that gateway is always sending some low-level amount of fake traffic through the network. That's actually how we prove that the mixing has been done correctly, actually. And that low-level fake traffic basically does you know, mixed nodes don't even know when the user's on and offline, ideally, and I think that's great. The second thing is you may know what fake traffic you put in, but you don't know what fake traffic other people put in. And that's why there's not one big mixed node. So in early mixed networks, it was kind of like one big node because no one had thought about decentralization. And uh, even though mixed networks are an amazing concept invented by David Chom, you can imagine you have a cascade of mixed nodes. So that you have like at least three. And so fake traffic is being put in by all sorts of people. And so you know less. You may know what fake traffic you put in, but you know if you're receiving fake traffic. And then furthermore, I mean, uh, NIM is more statistical than the classical Chami and MixNet. So we have a more like Tor-like structure. It's, it's structured though. It's a three-layer hops. And this basically means that not only it's not just one node sending traffic to another node to another node, that's or ca different cascades of nodes, but you know, you have five to a hundred, uh, I think in our current system, 300 possible mixed nodes, all of which could be adding fake traffic. So the, the packets get get individually routed, and it's honestly pretty confusing. So we have pretty good studies on this, uh, and our studies show that in order to actually de-anonymize packets going through a mixnet, uh, you have to compromise not 50%, not 51%, not 67% or whatever, like Cosmos. You have to compromise about 80% of the network to de-anonymize a single packet. Given that most transactions that are in any way interesting are more than one packet, it becomes really impossible to start doing de-anonymization attacks. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt this podcast to tell you about Interchain FM Steak. Did you know that Interchain FM is not only a podcast, but also a steakhouse? We are a premium sushi-grade A5 Wagyu steakhouse now up and running on Osmosis and Umi blockchains. If you benefit from the alpha that you're receiving from this show, show us your support by delegating to Interchain FM Steak. Is the network structure similarly to Tor in that the sequencing of nodes has like an entry and then a mixed node and then an exit node? It's structured similarly, but even a bit more complicated where you have a gateway, which is like your entry, but it doesn't really add privacy. There's no mixing going on. Then you have three mixed nodes and then you have another gateway. And that leads to the main problem where uh, NIM is not perhaps as interesting as Tor, where uh, we are going to be slower, right? There's more hops. And this mixing takes time. It's more computationally intensive. So it's a trade-off function. So Tor is naturally, a lot of people would say Tor versus NIM. In any kind of DVPN, I know some Cosmos DVPNs like Sentinel, they all sort of fit the Tor model or Orchid on Ethereum. They're incredibly similar, but there's no actual, in my opinion, differences in terms of privacy and security between any of these DVPNs and Tor. There's some incentive structure differences, and we'll see how those pan out. But... In terms of privacy, there's a big difference between privacy on a, on a mixnet and Tor, but for many applications, Tor is probably a better pick. Anything that involves uh, synchronous streaming, so this is stuff like web browsing, 
probably pretty good on tour. Tour may be a local maximum. We'll see. Maybe some of these DVPNs can give it a run for its money, but I, I haven't been convinced. On the other hand, what a mixed net is good for is because each packet is mixed individually, you know, routed individually, that the mixed nets are better for asynchronous kinds of use cases. So these are things like instant messaging, cryptocurrency, where people are just kind of used to waiting for a little bit for cryptocurrency transactions to come through. Uh, but also useful things like, you know, maybe file transfer, things you can lose a few packets or they come in a bit out of order and it's okay, like audio or even maybe video streaming where there's some buffering going on. So I, I do think that Tor might be and probably is definitely currently as good as you're going to get in terms of web browsers. I use the Tor web browser every day. And as soon as Nim gets enough money, we'll, we're going to give them a donation, I hope. Similarly to the Tor network, if you're running a gateway node, wouldn't you be at risk of getting a knock on the door by the feds, for example? If yeah, you- which is why uh, we suggest people run their own gateway nodes. <laughs> because the Sphinx packets are made locally, and then you choose your route through the mixnet. So your gateway kind of hides your actual IP of your computer from the mix nodes. So one setup we've seen some people in Switzerland is they run the gateway on a, on a Raspberry Pi. Uh, you know, maybe you can use Tor as your first hotway in if you're really paranoid. This is a lot of layers, but there's no, no theoretical reason why you can't do it. And that basically makes it harder for them, to, for any mix node to figure out who you are. You can all, I mean, we don't, you can also talk directly to a mix node. It's just kind of a bad concept, right? Because the mix node will then kind of get your IP address. That being said, you know, if mix nodes are getting traffic from all sorts of gateways, it's a bit more confusing for them. You can also change your gateway for every transaction. There's a lot of options. So in, in terms of like the gateways being attacked, that's something we have also noticed. That's probably one of the few places we agree with some other Cosmos projects. So, you know, we have hired uh, Chelsea Manning recently, and that's her main uh, work item. Is she is, and she uh, clearly said, well, look, we got to really strengthen the gateway connection. So not just keep them private, but make sure they don't get corrupted. What if the device itself gets corrupted? It's all sorts of issues. Like Chelsea's looking at it. And so we are kind of looking at some hardware-based solutions there. In the meantime, I do think running on a Raspberry Pi and being very private about it is as good as you're going to get. So like based on your experience with Tor, what kind of traffic have you seen go through? I'm asking this for all the people who are wondering like, oh, you know, we're just going to be using NIM for like child porn or something like that. What's your answer to that based on what you've seen used empirically on Tor? Well, there's a big difference between NIM and Tor, because I'm glad you brought this up because it's, so again, we imagine NIM is a better fit for cryptocurrency transactions. You know, if I send Tor has like, you know, it's a single circuit. You have, I do two Cosmos transactions. They both will get the same exit. And again, these machine learning attacks where you correlate traffic between the endpoints work a little bit better on Tor than you do on individually routing packets like NIM. But then you said, well, have you created a perfect anonymity system that is very dangerous? And of course, you know, with great power comes great responsibility, but that also there are separations of layers. So we are a network level protocol. And we were built for applications, for example, such as Cosmos. You know, you could have a Cosmos validator as your endpoint. In fact, I think this is something a lot of people brought that sort of century nodes in the Cosmos might be something that might be kind of cool to run over DIM because you don't want to have the same thing that has your key and wallet. You don't want that key and IP address in that computer to be hacked. You want to have a century to defend yourself when you're participating in a Cosmos-based network. And so in that regard, uh, one of the most interesting aspects of NIM is that we basically like aren't an open internet proxy. So what open internet proxy is, it means that I can use Tor. Tor is built around web browsing. It's great at that. 
So I can go to any website, I can access it over Tor. Now, the world is moving to a more client-server model. So even with cryptocurrency, most people don't run full nodes. They run light clients that talk to full nodes. And so NIM has essentially a what's called a service provider model. So, you know, a hidden service is kind of like, for example, a kind of service provider inside of, inside of Tor. And so we are an open internet proxy. We're clo- we are essentially, you can run one, we can't stop you. Uh, but we're a closed proxy system. And so this means by default. So this means that when I access NIM, I'm going to be accessing the other side, not just the open internet, but I'll be accessing like Signal. I'll be accessing like a wallet. I'll be accessing essentially a server. And that's a client server model. And so the kinds of, so the the pressure from uh, law enforcement or from anyone that would attack NIM uh, you know, assuming the users are kept anonymous by NIM would, would come down on the servers. And so servers, service providers, have to make their own choices about what kinds of traffic, what kinds of content they they allow. And that's the same as, and honestly, in that way, it works just like the internet. You can't prevent someone from doing something completely you disagree with on the internet, and it's the same with NIM. Uh, but the people that run the servers make that decision. The mixed nodes, they can't. They don't know what they're carrying. And uh, I think that's a good model for humanity. I'm not a huge fan of censorship. I'm very much against that, actually. And I do think that we, and there's kind of two ways to view bad behavior on the internet. You can say, okay, we have to ban it. We have to moderate it. We have to, moderate just kind of another word for censorship. We have to get rid of it. We have to not let it exist. And maybe it's just my anarchist leanings. I believe that we can reason with people, that we can win the battle of concepts. So we think as a society or even just as an individual that something is bad, that I disagree with it. I do think we should basically tell people they shouldn't do it and we should explain why. And that if we indeed are correct over the long run, uh, we'll win. And uh, maybe that and that may come down to a battle of words. It may come down to a battle of force. I'm not a pacifist by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, I think that's a better model than employing censorship. Because let's say we wanted to have a NIM network where we controlled absolutely everything. We don't want that. Part of the reason we're using Cosmos is because we don't want to even have that power. Let's say I change my mind tomorrow, wake up and say, I would like to censor a bunch of nodes. I want to censor a bunch of services. Um, I don't want to have that power. So when we launch, right now I do, I'm the test that I, I can turn things off and on all I want. But when we launch mainnet, which should be coming relatively shortly, I would say next month, I don't want to be able to turn off anything. And I don't think anyone should have that power. I think it should be on that level fully decentralized. People should make up their own choices. And we can argue with those choices. We can debate those choices. But whenever you create an architecture of censorship, you're essentially creating architecture of surveillance and architecture of power. And that's something that we have to have decentralized systems resist. Uh, Going back to the client-server model, is there a reasonable worry that a lot of servers will be run on something like Amazon or DigitalOcean, you know, and there could be centralization from that respect. And then either one of those companies could shut down these these servers if they wanted to. Yeah, I think that's already happened on Ethereum. <laughs> yeah, that's a concern. But again, you know, I don't know and I can't know because they're, you know, that's what the mixnet does. I can't know. I don't want to know who's running service providers. I don't want to know where they're running them. And they all run them on Amazon. They get shut down. It's their fault for being idiots. That being said, this is a real problem for the mixed network because what we don't want is you don't want the mixed network itself to all be running on DigitalOcean or Amazon and then shut down. 
Okay, that would be terrible. So I guess the question that we have there is how to prevent that. And we can prevent that pretty simply. And I'm actually surprised other blockchain company has done this. Our chief scientist, Claudia Diaz, invented a cool technique called Verloc, verified locations, which essentially, uh, so let's say, you know, right now you run a NIM, a NIM mix node and you have an IP address, but maybe you're, you're spoofing it, you're faking it. You can send packets across the internet. You can measure how long they should take. There's this wonderful command line tool called ping. And so essentially the way to think about it is we can do a lot of decentralized pinging that's kind of verifiably fair. And we can determine more or less your actual, not exact geolocation, not even your neighborhood, but kind of what country you're in. And uh, we have published that paper. We have working code. It's working the test net. And so we can kind of guarantee, which is something that's very nice with NIM. We haven't quite pulled off yet, but we'll pull off before mainnet that the nodes are spread out in ways such that they are both efficient, so they mix packets correctly, but also spread out in different jurisdictions. And I think that's a super important thing. And I do hope that Cosmos, other people, see this Verloc paper in this library and use it in their blockchain systems to make sure that their validators are adequately decentralized in a jurisdictional manner. Makes sense. Can you talk about your proof of mixing consensus algo? Yeah. So, well, the two different things, right? So, so again, again, remember we have mixed node validators. There are mixed nodes and validators. Validators are maintaining the state of the mixed nodes, and they're just running a standard consensus protocol, which is Tendermint, which I think everyone on this uh, show should be familiar with. Very standard PBFT. And they're running a blockchain. That blockchain keeps track of the reputation as sort of NIM token of each of the mixed nodes. It gives them rewards if they mix correctly. And it also lets things like anonymous credentials based on the coconut signature scheme work. So that's where Cos... And, I, you know, honestly, we're thinking about just turning on Cosmwasm so people can upload smart contracts. Why not? We've uploaded a few. We run our rewards uh, and our monitoring mix nodes via Cosmwasm, via WebAssembly. We build everything in Rust, compile down the WebAssembly, run all there. And what we run on the Cosmos blockchain is actually this part of this program which determines if nodes are mixing correctly or not. If you are an American, this doesn't happen in other countries, but it, I am an American and it, it, in Switzerland, but it, I used to be in America. There's this thing called secret shoppers. This was a great concept, originally invented by, I think, by Leif Riggi for Tor and then talked by Jeff Burgess at Web3 and then we kind of carried onwards. And this concept says, you know, if we have these anonymous Sphinx packets... We can add packets and no one can tell we're adding packets. And anyone can add packets, no one can add packets. And some of these packets, rather than sending actual communication data through, can be monitoring the performance of the mixed nets. You can imagine the packets going around in a big circle. If it falls, we can kind of detect that it's, it's fallen, that it's been dropped. And then that's how we can basically prove someone's mixing because we can select the paths in a fair manner. We can send a bunch of secret shopper traffic over the network. And these secret shoppers go through the whole network at the end of each epoch, because, you know, again, it's Cosmos, so this epoch-based system, we say, hey, what nodes were dropping packets and what nodes weren't? And since there's not a central authority sending those packets, all the Cosmos validators are sending those packets out, the Cosmos validators can ensure that the traffic is effectively uh, being mixed fairly. And so that's a kind of cool system. We haven't actually, that's in the white paper. We haven't published the full spec yet, but uh, we're working with Agalos and Claudia on that as well. So when you mentioned Cosmosm, you're saying that people could leverage the NIM network for smart contracts? Yeah, I mean, I was kind of against it, but my CTO was really into it. So I said, okay, why not? When we started uh, looking at Cosmos, Cosmosm didn't really exist. 
and it was like a prototype, and uh, it you know works really well. So it's not the smart contracts themselves are not private. <laughs> In fact, the the Nix blockchain that Nim uses is not private at all by default, unless you use Coconut with it. In which case, you have some private transaction capabilities. So just don't get confused there. But as it is just a very standard Gaia D, uh, Cosm Wasm chain, yeah, of course you can just upload smart contracts there. You know, we have a decent set of validators. We actually were looking at all the other Cosm Wasm chains. Because, you know, originally we were hanging this whole thing off Liquid and we said, why don't we just hang this all off, say, Juno or whatnot. And we were actually surprised, uh, you know, we have a fair amount of investors from Binance, A16, to Polychain. I think Figment and Chorus One are involved, a whole bunch, lots of volunteers in the community. And we ended up saying, well, we actually have, you know, 30 to, you know, depending how you count them and who's running at any given moment, 30 to 40 validators at any time. Uh, that's actually pretty good for a Cosmos chain. And so we we can just hang NIM off of Nix, and maybe if other people want to use it for whatever reason, they can upload it as stuff as well. We have not turned on IBC yet, mainly because I, I have to admit we I haven't looked at it carefully enough. I don't also I don't know. I have to admit I'm a little bit. I personally don't hold Adam. I mean I like the foundation's wonderful. Sam Hart's been a, a pleasure to work with. I'm I'm an American. I hold only Bitcoin, but. You know, so I, I'm still trying to understand the financial dynamics, the traffic dynamics of, of opening up to IBC. But looking at projects like Agoric and whatnot, I do think there there might be something there. I just have to look at it more. I'm really focused on NIM and Mixnets right now. So trying to understand this multi-chain world and understanding how NIM can leverage it is still something we're it's very early days on. How is this different from the secret network? So the secret network uh, is, again, you know, we offer privacy on chain only via anonymous credentials, which are the, the coconut signature scheme. Uh, secret, uh, which I, I, Guy's an old friend. We were at MIT at the same time. I think he was over in Sandy's lab, and Sandy's also a, a kind of NIM supporter. And Guy, you know, Guy was talking about Bitcoin and doing classes on it in 2016. So I remember his Enigma paper. It was originally an NPC paper. Multi-party computation. It seems I have to. I haven't kept very good touch with Guy. It seems like it's transformed into a SGX-based system or secure trusted hardware-based system, and uh, we're not. We don't use any secure or trusted hardware yet. We're thinking about it on the gateways. We definitely don't use anything on chain. And so the way that Secret says what they do. Uh, so there's basically two ways to think about privacy on chain. Uh, one way is you use some sort of zero-knowledge proof system or use anonymous credential system. You use pure cryptography. Another way is you use some sort of hardware-based. Solution, which is trusted hardware. And uh, trusted hardware, currently the only thing really in the market, although there's a bunch of cool stuff coming from ARM and Project Oak from Google. But uh, the only thing that works now basically is Intel SGX. This is what Signal uses. And uh, it does some, prevents you from accessing keys and can verify some, I think, quite limited amounts of execution. Now, I'm initially was very against SGX. I'm still basically against SGX because uh, SGX was invented for DRM. Uh, was not, and I hate DRM, as I've already explained, so I wasn't a huge fan of seeing uh, weird DRM systems used for privacy. That being said, uh, Secret's doing some great work. It's cool. They've repurposed the terrible DRM technology to be used for privacy on a blockchain. Definitely nothing, not something I saw coming. SGX is probably not sufficient, but it may be a very important part for privacy on chain insofar as you want some sort of defense in death. So let's say your, your zero-knowledge system, you know, most people don't really understand. It's a very popular term, but most people don't understand it very well. A lot of new systems, they're not properly verified. We just spent a year making security proofs for Coconut. That's a much more basic system than a lot of the zero-knowledge systems being thrown around like Plonk or Halo 2 or Sapling or whatever you want to do. My concern be that, you know, if your zero-knowledge system breaks, 
it's good to have like some secure hardware there so you're not totally in the clear. But vice versa, I don't think secure hardware is enough because, you know, the big critique of secure hardware is that, you know, particularly with Intel SGX, you got to trust Intel. And that's not crazy. Intel made the hardware. How do you know what's in the hardware? I, you, you sure don't. And if you don't know what's in the hardware, how do you, how can you trust it? And Intel does have a kill switch in all of this stuff because what they're afraid of is crypto encrypted malware. How would have someone made an SGX trusted uh, malware worm? I mean, this would be terrible. SGX, Intel wants a big off button there. So we, it doesn't uh, enable via SGX something truly uh, that they can't control. But then at the same point, do you really want all of your, uh, this is where I actually disagree with Signal and Mobile Coin. I don't think hardware is particularly, uh, hardware-based solutions are particularly sufficient uh, by themselves because I don't really trust Intel. Uh, you know, I don't trust Intel inside. And so I think you want to use both. And I haven't seen, and I would love to see Secret work on this. I would love to see, I don't know what else is going on, Zero Knowledge Space and Cosmos, I'm sure it's uh, Penumbra, whatever. I would like to see more systems that are built on top of, that claim to deliver privacy do uh, defense and death. And that means that they should do both network privacy via NIM or Tor or whatever makes sense for their use case, but they should also use both cryptography and as a backup secure hardware. If you really want to talk secure hardware, you should probably get Chelsea Manning on the show at some point. She's been really going deep in the space in terms of the new risk stuff, but it's not really my specialty. I just have philosophical design thoughts about it. That gives me Richard Stallman vibes where he wants open and free hardware. The problem is if you don't understand, I mean, computing when it first happened, like anyone could understand the whole stack, but that's not the case nowadays. So, you know, we have to depend on people to understand the stack force. That's pretty scary from a security and privacy perspective. So I do support open secure hardware. I know Tor's been working on open and secure randomness for their Tor nodes. We're hoping to take some advantage of some of that. Randomness, honestly, everything in cryptography depends on randomness. And uh, yeah, so, you know, we, I, I think there is, uh, even though it seems crazy, there's something to be said for open hardware. It's just a little bit out of scope for NIM. But I think Cosmos, you know, if I were a Cosmos validator, I would definitely want to make sure my randomness is securely generated. You've got millions, if not, you know, more behind a key. You really want to make sure that key is not backdoored or not guessable. Absolutely. Well, so architecturally, it sounds like there's a lot of differences between NIM and Secret Network. However, on the higher level application layer for the developer who is deciding on which app chain to build apps on, it sounds like there's not too much of a difference, except that uh, Secret is private by default and NIM has anonymous credentialing. Again, NIM has two components. We have mixed nets and anonymous credentials. So we think NIM and Secret could work well together because you could use the mixed net for your network layer and then for your blockchain layer. We don't care what you use. It's honestly, we don't even know because it's anonymous. So you could use, for example, Secret on top. I think that'd be cool. I'd love to see someone do that. I'd really encourage someone to do that. If you were choosing a chain to deploy on in terms of privacy, it just really depends how you feel. You know, if you like secure hardware, go for t- secret. That might be better choice. If you like anonymous credentials, go for NIM. If you like zero knowledge, I don't know. I think Zcash might be switching to Cosmos or something. Go for Zcash, right? So, you know, it's at this point, we don't have very good comparisons uh, of the space as a whole. And I think it's very hard to make educated and informed decisions. And the most important thing is to get the code out there. And I actually don't see, like I said earlier, a big contradiction between using mixed nets for net. I think best of breed for network for cryptocurrency transactions is mixed nets. Uh, best of breed for cryptography will be some form of anonymous credentials and zero knowledge proofs for you know sp- actual private smart contracts. 
and that you'll need, particularly if open hardware comes out, you'll need some secure hardware stuff behind it. It's cool that people can approach these problems with three different R&D directions, three different companies, 10 different companies. It's not very mature right now. <laughs> Our mix is mature, but you know we're still, we just lo- opened up Cosmo-Wasm contracts like today, right? So, so I wouldn't, I, I would wait a year or two before trying to build privacy enhanced stuff on chain. Just see how it shakes out. So you did allude to some applications that could be used on NIM, like Signal or, well, like on Secret, there's NFTs. So can you talk more about what sorts of applications could leverage a network like NIM? I mean, you could use NIM with applications today. It's not like this dream in a white paper. It's like pretty uh, theoretically solid and practically pretty solid. So if I were going to build something on top of NIM today, we have docs, you can go do this. We have what's called a SOX5 proxy. It's a standardized proxy used by VPNs, used by Tor. We also support that exact same proxy. You just start the NIM client on your on your computer. You have a local kind of local host port, and anything that goes to that port will go straight to NIM. So you can start Keybase. You can start, I know Blockchain Green's wallet works like this. I think uh, Electrum, which is another Bitcoin wallet. And of course, the NIM wallet <laughs> uh, lets you basically which is a, you know, has a Cosmos backend, uh, lets you basically plug and play the local host IP address into like a source setup uh, in, the, in the config. And that runs all that traffic through NIM. You can run that traffic through NIM today. You can run it right through our sandbox testnet. And, you know, if you're feeling crazy, you don't really recommend it, you can even run web browser. You can open up Firefox. Chrome doesn't let you do this, but Firefox, which is what Tor browser uses, let you actually choose a SOX5 proxy in your config, and you can, we've streamed video over NIM. It's a bit slow, but it worked. And so we think that uh, the problem is that it's a pain for users. If I want to use them, I don't want to tell a user, I mean, I don't mind or power users or cryptocurrency people because they're pretty open to new technology. I don't want to say, oh, you have to go and do this crazy cut and paste from one NIM file to like your config and your browser. I prefer to tell people that they should, uh, build NIMIN natively so that you just start the app and your network's just private by default. It talks to the Cosmoplasm blockchain by without even thinking, without anyone even knowing about it. I would prefer if users didn't even have to know about NIM. Uh, NIM tokens is just private by default. You know, maybe if they're doing a transaction in Bitcoin, they might pay a transaction fee in Bitcoin. If they're doing a transaction to Atom, maybe they pay a transaction fee in Atom. That's where the multi-chain stuff of Cosmos is quite useful. And that, you know, regardless, these fees go to feed the mixed network. And maybe you don't have, you want Signal to work for free with NIM. So maybe Moxie, or I think he just stepped down. I was just chatting with him recently. Maybe Brian Acton buys, sorry, I can't remember who's running Signal now. Brian buys a bunch, uh, some access to NIM. They say, we need this much bandwidth and just buy that ahead of time. So for the users, it's all just totally open. And I think that's a pretty good model. And that that's what I would like to see NIM go in the future. These kind of native applications with you know, things which are already privacy enhanced, things like Signal, things like Brave, uh, wallets that advertise themselves as privacy enhanced. I haven't seen any good privacy enhanced DeFi stuff, but I think it's still early days. And I think that will be the future of NIM is that, you know, for the next few years, there's going to be just more and more applications doing native integrations. Because if you don't do native integrations, it's just a pain for the users. So if I were someone from behind the Great Firewall and I wanted to leverage a Web3 application that is running on web infrastructure that has been censored, could I, you know, host it using NIM and allow people to access those websites that have been banned 
in the Great Firewall? Yeah, the Great Firewall is a, a pretty tricky enemy. As you may or may not know, they, they block Tor really effectively, and Tor uses what's called Ostracation Proxy based on Philip Winter's Scramble Suite work. That's an incredibly high tech, uh, great technology, and Tor deploys it today, but nonetheless, the Great Firewall of China has incredibly good machine learning and good IP address notification. So you can, if you're inside China today, you can email Tor, they'll give you what's called a novice proxy, and then you can eventually get it working. But, you know, this is where Nimbus, every once in a while people are like, why do you have these gateways? Uh, what is a gateway? So a gateway, again, is the first hop into the, the NIM network. It's not mixing the traffic. It's just letting you obscure your initial IP address through one more layer. And that's pretty cool, but it has some other uses that we haven't really talked about. So, for example, if you're trying to get out of, let's say, a place that's under censorship, you need to hide that first layer, that first hop. That first hop is the hop that gets detected and gets you shut down and censored. So the question is, how do you hide that first hop? There's two methods. One is the one, uh, obfuscation, which we talked about earlier, where you try to pretend, oh, it's not NIM, it's like something else, right? It's, I pretend it's a domain fronting, depend it's going to Google, depend it's normal HTTPS traffic. The other, uh, philosophy, which no one has really explored, but I honestly think blockchain people should really explore is looking at not just peer to peer traffic, but noticing that in places like China, uh, they don't block all VPN traffic. They only block VPNs, which they are used by people who they politically identified as dissidents. And they block VPN traffic that's used by kind of more than 30 people. Soon as we talk a lot to Mask Network, uh, Suji Yan in particular, we've talked to uh, Naomi Wu about this. We've talked to quite a few Chinese hackers on this. And it seems like, and this is what I do when I go to China, I... I start a shadow sock server. I run it on a little VPS and I've never been blocked. And I'm the only one that uses it or maybe I give it to a few friends I've been in China with. And I think blockchain technologies can take advantage of the same fundamentals that they can basically, we can say, uh, let's start little nodes that only have 20 or 30 people going through them and use those nodes to access the wider internet and maybe access ideally a NIM mixnet because that's actually anonymous where you're going. <laughs> Right, so you enter a you enter a gateway. That gateway is essentially a shadow socks, or I think it's what's the new one, V1 Ray and, and Trojan. It's some sort of new protocol that's somehow not censored yet, but maybe not super secure. But it looks like traffic that isn't necessarily dangerous. It doesn't look like tour traffic. You get through that first hop, and then you blast out. And then the problem you've always had with anonymous proxies uh, and with this kind of philosophy is like, well, why would you run these things, right? And this is where blockchain technology and Web3 is controversial as has a lot to say because it says, well, we'll pay people. We can have an automated system to algorithmically pay people for running these uh, kind of nodes. And I think that's great uh, so that, you know, if a node goes down, let's say I want to access the, I want to access a VPN. And this is where DVPN technology like Sentinel may have a very important role to play. And I, I, I remember looking at them. I think they were the only ones that supported Shadow Socks in the first hop that, you know, I want to hop out and my node I got hop I was hopping to got censored. So someone else has paid a little bit of, I don't know, cryptocurrency to run up a new node really quickly. So you always have kind of these uh, a sort of rather than trying to hide against China, uh, Chinese or even in the future, American machine learning. Instead, you basically have a swarm of many, many nodes and incentive systems so that people are comfortable uh, starting and running and maintaining those nodes and keeping those nodes small. And I think that's going to be a more effective way to not allow cryptocurrency transactions and other kinds of communication from being censored and blocked.
With that being said, with state level actors potentially becoming interested in this network, is there any fear of regulators coming down and shutting you down, especially as a core development team building this technology? Yeah, well, I mean, we are pushing very hard to launch mainnet and decentralize it so we have less and less control over, so that should not really matter to the future of the network. Uh, that being said, you know, if you look at, for example, a lot of government guidance, you know, FinCEN, the U.S. regulatory body, says it's legal to run an anonymizing network. It is not legal to do something illegal over it. And one thing that they classify as illegal is like all of DeFi, for example, it seems to require at least by U.S. regulations, a money transmitter license. So we're not U.S., we're Swiss-based. Swiss tends to have, uh, Swiss one tends to have better legal framework, more cryptocurrency-friendly, more open, more innovation-friendly than the United States. Uh, yeah, of course we're concerned. Uh, we wouldn't, why we wouldn't be concerned? So while what we are doing is, I think, very clearly legal, if I were another project, particularly a DeFi project, I'd be very concerned right now. And I think, and our solution is uh, basically to make sure we have a clear home jurisdiction Switzerland, which supports us, just made a statue of Chelsea Manning in Geneva, and, and you know, privacy-friendly regulations. And, you know, we have a lot of lawyers. I've been doing climate change activism. I'm doing anarchist activism. I've had a lot of legal problems in my life before starting NIM. And there's, there's one thing I feel perfectly comfortable with. It's dealing with legal problems. And the way you deal with them is you have a good strategy. You have good lawyers. And I uh, have the uh, highest confidence in our current uh, legal strategy and lawyers. I would not start a DeFi company in the U.S. right now, just to, just to be clear. <laughs> I think it's terrible idea. So I'm actually more worried for them than us, but we'll see how it all pans out. Yeah, fair enough. I feel bad for Uniswap right now. Yeah, I can imagine they're going through lots of pain. I mean, I, I don't personally engage in DeFi. I'm too busy working on NIM. I'm not a finance person. I don't give financial advice. Yeah, I can imagine that. I mean, you know, Do Kwan has been a great guy. He is one of the people that kind of pointed us to Cosmwasm. And it's terrible what they did to him. You know, I think it's a jurisdictional overreach. And we have to just, you know, support each other and uh, make sure we get through what may be a crazy, to be honest, generational shift as a bunch of boomers just have to get used to the fact that crypto is here to stay. And so I've been actually very irritated with this la uh, latest round of anti-crypto backlash. What was that? The uh, various people uh, basically say, oh, it's all scam. It's all, I mean, yeah, and they're lots of Ponzi schemes and scams, particularly on Ethereum. I'm not going to argue. I haven't actually seen that many scams on Cosmos. I'm sure they exist, but I haven't seen any. They're not here yet. Maybe they'll come when Adam pumps. Um, you know, one thing that Adam, which irritates us, irritate us in them, which is what may prevent that, is, you know, Adam uh, doesn't really have like a finite supply. It's just kind of emitted to keep the 60, uh, the, the PBFT running. And so that, that actually naturally keeps the price down which is against, you know, NIM is more algorithmic, so we couldn't do that. It's definitely going to keep Cosmos from being a total scam fest, at least for a, a while. I do think, you know, we're going to have more and more legal issues. Uh, we're going to have more and more personal issues. And I've been very impressed uh, by the work of DAOs, for example, the, I don't know. I mean, I'm very skeptical on DAOs as a governance entity. I, uh, NIM is a company and we will remain a company. Maybe we'll transfer into a foundation or DAO, but most foundations I've seen in the crypto space Tezos come to mind have gone horribly, horribly wrong. Interchain seems fine, though. I do think we should start build, thinking about how we can collect and collectivize uh, legal self-defense as a public good for the crypto community. Because we are building a new route of innovation. I'm, and I'm pretty upset at all of the boomers that are against it because the way they say, oh, it's just a giant scam. I was like, guys, you guys, 
First thing, there's valid technology. I also thought it was a scam, but then I started, oh, look, zero knowledge proofs, wonderful technology. Tinderman, it's as stable as MySQL. It's a perfectly fine PBFT system. Uh, NIM is a mixnet, something the cypherpunks and us have been trying to build for like 20 or 30 years. There's actually, I mean, regardless of the whole space, there's a subset of incredibly amazing technology being built. And all of this technology could be under threat. And so we need to have collective, essentially legal self-defense. And maybe a DAO is a good way to run it. I mean, it's, I've been impressed by how much money they've raised for things like, I don't know, constitutions. And I recently had some friends uh, who were start up at a Julian Assange DAO to help him pay his legal bills, seeing how it worked out for Ross Ulbrich. And Snowden and Tor fundraised off this stuff. So I think there might be something there. You know, to be honest, I'm too busy with them to work on it too much. But I do hope other people who are concerned about the legal issues, particularly from the DeFi space, uh, get together and start uh, working on some sort of DAO to get them all out of jail. Yeah, absolutely. We can't allow any of our people to be scapegoated in this landscape because we do have to remember that the final boss is ultimately the governments themselves that are trying to stifle this innovation. I can tell a little funny story there. You know, we, uh, we've had a lot of support Interchain and Cosmos ecosystem has been wonderful. I remember one of the people that convinced me to do NIM was Zachy Manayan. We had dinner and he said, look, we went to a European commission meeting to help push for the fact that uh, we could put this technology to use for on blockchain. And this was way early days. This is like 2017 and 16 in Cosmos space, very early. Uh, so Zachy has been great. We've had lots of support. Uh, we've really enjoyed working with Interchain. Cosmos and Wasm team has been absolutely wonderful to work with. And to be honest, our only supporter from the Ethereum Foundation uh, was this ex-Tor employee called Virgil Griffith, who, uh, you know, I actually, we were getting our testnet running and I messaged him and I said, hey, Virgil, we got our testnet running. Maybe you want to try it out, maybe build something on Ethereum or run a node or something because everyone else in Ethereum, they were throwing money at all sorts of weird scams. There's a total scammy copycat of NIM on Ethereum, for example. And, you know, Virgil was smart enough that he could tell the difference. And, you know, he got the message. And then I think that later the next day, I didn't know. I mean, you know, he got off an airplane and went to jail, right? So this can happen to anyone. And that's why it's really important to collectivize uh, some form of legal self-defense. Yeah, we got a free Virgil as well. I, I think he's being held unfairly. Yeah. And, you know, I hope it doesn't happen to anyone in the Cosmos ecosystem. But you never know. You know, I think what Cosmos, maybe we can end on this, what Cosmos really has going for it is that we looked at a lot of different blockchain systems. I mean, we looked at so many. And okay, this was a, more than a year ago. And there was a lot of hype and most of it didn't work. And I said, well, look, the only thing, you know, I mean, I'm honestly a bit of maybe a cryptocurrency boomer myself. I said, well, at least Bitcoin works. So maybe we can try building off that. But then our CTO uh, discovered Cosmos and the Cosmos SDK. And I was at first skeptical, but then it ended up really working and being super useful and saving us tons of time and pushing the network out, allowing us to concentrate our energies on the mixnet and not have to, for example, build a smart contract language or anything crazy like that. And so I think Cosmos does have a lot going for it. I don't think it should try to be a general purpose cryptocurrency like Atom should be used for staking on Atom and making Cosmos hub work. That's a great use case. That's valuable enough. You should have one sort of thing per use case. Uh, but I do think that Cosmos technology has to have all the blockchain tech I've seen is the only one outside of Bitcoin that actually works out the box really well and I can rely on. And then watching them add Cosmosm and WebAssembly uh, support has been super amazing because it's also 
a lot of blockchains, they stop innovating at a certain point, and uh, Cosmos is clearly still innovating. Absolutely. And with that happy note, let's close out because we've been talking almost an hour and 30 minutes now. So thank you, Harry, for the amazing insights that you've offered us today. And uh, where can people find you? Yeah, so we're at NimTech. That's NimTech, N-Y-M-T-E-C-H dot net. Uh, we're on Twitter is NimProject, N-Y-M-P-R-O-J-E-C-T. And we have, from there, you can find the usual sort of Telegram, Medium, YouTube, and most importantly, the developer docs to check out. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I sincerely hope you found the information contained in it educational and useful for your personal learning development. I understand that the space moves so fast and there's too much information to digest sometimes. My goal with Interchain FM is to serve only the highest signal information in easy to digest courses so that you're not overwhelmed with TMI and leave only with context that matters. Interchain FM airs live every Thursday on my Twitter handle at C-H-J-A-N-G-O or on Chango and Chain's YouTube channel. If you miss our live sessions, you won't miss a single episode when you visit interchain.fm. I hope to see you at the next show.